There is nothing wrong in America today that a change of leadership will not make happen. Why did I? I got the feeling that something right Never is I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me Jokers to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in the middle Yes, I am from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles This is the Bradcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 91.7 FM KYAQ, along the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not. Radio Free Brooklyn, and on Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us for another thrilling adventure. Uh, We will be speaking uh, momentarily with Seth Stoughton from the University of South Carolina School of Law about that, uh, well, about that videotape that everyone's talking about. Out of McKinney, Texas, your hometown, Desi Doyen, sort of, kind (laughs) of. Yeah, not really, but close enough. Close enough. Well, you got family there, right? Yes, yes, I do have family there. You notice how I try to blame everything wrong in this country on you and Texas. Well, it is so easy to do to blame everything on Texas. It really is. It really is. Uh, But before we get to all of that, uh, we got a lot of news to get to today. We'll see how much we can actually get to. But before we get to all of that, this just breaking, former House Speaker Dennis Hastert pleaded not guilty uh, Tuesday afternoon to charges that he lied to the FBI about illegal bank withdrawals, money he allegedly used to pay off, uh, used for payoffs to keep sexual misconduct uh, accusations under wraps. The 73-year-old Illinois Republican was thronged by media as he entered a federal courthouse in Chicago ahead of his scheduled arraignment. He answered a few questions in a voice that was barely more than a whisper. And his new high-powered attorney, Thomas Green, a veteran of political scandals, entered the plea on his behalf. As part of his bond conditions, Hastert had to turn over his passport. He must remove any firearms from his property. U.S. District Judge Thomas Durkin presided over the hearing, but he may not continue with the case. He revealed that because he was friends with Hastert's son, he made donations to the congressman's 2002 and 2004 campaigns, and he gave both parties two days to decide whether he should be disqualified. Oh, do you think? Do you think he should be disqualified? He gave money to... Anyway, uh... Hastert, who retired from Congress in 2007, became a lobbyist for Turkey, by the way, for a foreign agent, uh, which is something that uh, whistleblower Sibel Edmonds, FBI, uh, former FBI translator turned whistleblower, had accused Hastert of uh, years ago working for Turkish interests. Uh, as well, she says she overheard wiretaps in which 
They discuss uh, Denny Hastert receiving bribes, being uh, uh, the victim of blackmail, receiving uh, tons of money, tens of thousands of dollars. That was back in 2006. We reported it on this show, and uh, very few others reported it elsewhere. Said that it was outrageous to uh, to, to to tar Denny Hastert with with such allegations. In any event, uh, maybe it wasn't that outrageous, according to all of these new reports. Uh, in any event, uh, oh, and then yeah, then Hastert, as soon as he retired from Congress, went on to become a foreign agent for the country of Turkey, just as Sibel Edmonds had uh, suggested he might many years earlier. In any event, court papers say that uh, that Hastert agreed to pay a person identified only as individual A 3.5 million in hush money to conceal quote prior misconduct. So we still don't absolutely know the identity of individual A. A woman has stepped forward uh, to say that her brother uh, who died of AIDS some years ago said that uh, he and uh, Hastert had uh, some form of inappropriate relationship. What's uh, striking to me here is that uh, in in arguing not guilty, that means this thing could very well go to trial, in which case more and more material is going to come out about what happened, about these charges, about who individual A is, about, uh, you know, potentially other people stepping forward to say they had uh, inappropriate relations with Dennis Hastert. So breaking news there uh, in a fascinating story that I suspect we will be keeping our eyes on in the days, weeks and months ahead, at least as long as Denny Hastert is going to going to fight these charges. Uh, let's see some other uh, news. Oh, we've got uh, some more breaking news I'll get to in a bit coming out of Arkansas and uh, the uh, marriage equality fight there as the uh, as the dead enders in that state uh, fight to stop progress, fight to stop a conservative interpretation of the Constitution, which says that everyone is entitled to equal equal justice under the law. Yes, that's right. We are, as usual, taking the conservative constitutional position on marriage equality, even though the folks in Arkansas who pretend to be conservatives are not taking the conservative position. They're continuing to fight this. We've got some uh, some good, some encouraging news out of Arkansas, although you know what? It's all encouraging because uh, we are, as I've been talking about, entering a progressive age when stuff like this uh, is, is, you know, going to be uh, laughed at when people are going to say, Mommy, Daddy, did they really used to stop uh, gay people from marrying each other? Just as they do now when it comes to interracial marriage. So uh, let's see. We, we've got that. Oh, and we've got much more. Uh, but first, the video that everyone's been talking about uh, for the last several days coming out of McKinney, Texas. I'm sure you have seen it by now. This outrageous behavior by a cop in McKinney, Texas, who shows up at a suburban pool party and starts uh, roughing up these kids, these 13, 14, 15 year old kids. Most notably, the ones who are African-American for some odd reason. Uh, Some of the cops uh, seem to be behaving okay. One in particular did not behave okay. Decidedly did not behave okay. Uh, threw a, a 14-year-old uh, African-American uh, girl to the ground, a bikini-clad African-American uh, w- woman to the ground who was clearly no threat to anyone. He then pulled out his gun, 
on uh, some of the other kids there, started pointing it to I mean, just out- outrageous. Now, of course, good news is nobody got killed in this uh, for a change down there. But as I said, Desi Doyen, it's your fault because you have family in McKinney, Texas. And it's amazing. <laughs> I don't think you said it was my fault because I, I had family in Texas. Have I moved the, uh, yeah, moved the, the goalposts goal a little bit? Quite a bit, I'd say. It's your yeah. fault, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's remarkable, actually. Desi, being from Texas, uh, we go to her as our Texas expert, our expert on <laughs> such issues. But uh, it's amazing how often we have to go to you these days on, on these issues. It seems like Texas, well, it's almost like it's a whole nother country. Well, it is. It is like a whole nother country. Remember, for a short period of time, it was a whole nother country before Texas decided to sign the contract and become subsumed within the United States. They love to pretend like they could still be their own independent country, but they can't. And as you know, I would be just fine with them being a whole nother country because then we could finally finish that fence and keep those foreigners from Texas from coming in and selling our good country (laughs) of the United States of America. Um, we're going to talk with uh, Seth Stoughton about this from the South Carolina School of Law. But first, uh, I want to play this uh, recorded. This was a uh, cop, a former McKinney cop, longtime uh, uh, policeman on the force down there who was asked about this event. And, uh, well, they 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 watched the videotape as he described what he saw happening on this videotape down in McKinney, Texas. I don't care what she was yelling at that officer. I mean, anything would not have said what he did and would have justified throwing her to the ground and pushing her down and throwing her face into the concrete like he did. I mean, police officers are human, Natalie. Emotions can sometimes get the best of them. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, I think the emotions went, and, went a little crazy. And just, he pulls a gun, and we have a couple more quick points to make. But there he is yeah. right now pulling off the gun out of the holster. Which. There's no reason for that. I mean, I think the officer, Caseful, perceived that he was being threatened by people, but and that usually is a common tactic is to pull a weapon if you feel like you're being threatened. But in this particular case, you see the other officers come up behind and actually kind of push the gun away. I think that's in- indicative of saying that this was probably a little too much. And he was, again, these were his emotions that I think that just got too high. And that's why he's reacting the way he did. Okay. And last, I'm going to be quick here. Uh, the, the group African-American, we see the officers are white. How big of a factor is race in all of this? And does this have the potential to be a more um, explosive situation? Whether we like it or not, there is an indication based on watching the video that the white people that were around the officer weren't talked to. They weren't pushed away. They weren't told to get on the ground. They weren't put in handcuffs. The only individuals that the McKinney police were doing that to were those that were African-American. I should say that's a a longtime uh, police uh, on the uh, McKinney, Texas force. He is now a former uh, cop responding to that video. The good news, I suppose, here is that for a change, no one died in this video, so there is that. But what actually can we learn from this video moving forward other than, oh, it's another outrage uh, against the African-American community? Because it certainly seems to be that. But what more can we take from this? Well, to figure that out, we've got Assistant Professor Seth Stoughton from the University of South Carolina School of Law, part of the Rule of Law Collaborative there where he focuses on criminal law, criminal procedure, and the regulation of police. He's previously served as an officer with the Tallahassee Police Department for five years, spent three years as an investigator at the Florida Department of Education's Office of Inspector General, and he wrote about this fine mess and what we can learn about it 
at Talking Points Memo today in an article headlined, A Former Cop on What Went Wrong in McKinney. Seth Stoughton, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, you actually, as we spoke a little bit off the air, seem to have made lemonade out of this uh, situation full of lemons and uh, sort of analyzed the video as far as what you know the cops did right and what the cops did wrong. But before we get to that point, uh, Seth, w- what was your first reaction when you saw this videotape? I ask because I think that a lot of people... Uh, will share that reaction. You know, people who only watched it once didn't watch it as a as a former cop. Uh, you know, w- what do people see when they see videos like this? As far as you can tell, well, a lot of people will first read the news report or listen to the news broadcast and then watch the video. What mm-hmm. I try and do, from both a former police officer perspective and a current policing scholar perspective. If I try and watch the videos first before I see someone else's commentary about them, so that's sort of the way that police officers go into a scene. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of information they don't have. Um, when police officers responded to the pool party in McKinney, for example, they didn't know who the um, suspects were. They didn't know who was fighting. They didn't have all of that information at their fingertips. I try and approach videos the same way. And that gives me a little bit of a a blind look, if you will. What I saw in this video, before reading any of the commentary, Mm -hmm. before trying to um, examine it uh, frame by frame, was, I'm talking about the 7-minute, 20-second video, sort of full-length video out there. Um, The first part of the video looks relatively, and I mean about the first minute, Mm -hmm. looks relatively non-controversial. You see one officer running, then and falling and doing a um, little gymnastic maneuver to get back onto his feet. That's the and Starsky and Hutch are, barrel roll. Want to make that, that clear? Is the star, uh, that, <laughs> it is, yes, that is um, losing his flashlight in the process. Well, that happens. Officers right. have to get places in a hurry, right? although running on scene is not typically uh, encouraged unless absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the camera, the, the cameraman or uh, another of his friends picks up a uh, the flashlight that um, the barrel-rolling officer dropped and brings it to another officer. And for about 30 seconds, you see that officer interacting with a group of young black men and, and then the, uh, a couple of white kids as well when the, when the teenage uh, cameraman walks up. And he's very calm. He's not casual, but he's definitely professional and friendly. He's talking to the kids about how they shouldn't just run when they see police pull up on the scene. Uh, He is listening to their concerns as they try and tell him who's involved and who's not involved in the incident that Mm -hmm. they were responding to. And he engages with them. He says, thank you, I appreciate that. He thanks the kid for bringing in his flashlight. That has all of the hallmarks of a good police interaction. Unfortunately, it's a very small portion of the video because at about second 50, mm-hmm. that's where uh, Corporal Casebolt come in, comes in and um, the, the tenor of the police interaction, the tone, the attitude, the language, the actions completely change. Now that's Corporal Eric Casebolt. Casebolt, I believe he's been put on uh, administrative leave. He's a, uh, uh, I, I believe he trains other policeman in the area as well as a uh, a union official police union official and things changed very much when he 
showed up it seems and and we and we should say here that we don't have the entire picture the video only gives us one segment one idea about what's going on uh you know we don't know what happened before or after but then yeah case bolt shows up and everything seems to change and uh that seems to exemplify these two types of policing methods you describe in your article, Seth Stoughton, uh, the guardian and the warrior. That first one you described seemed to be more the guardian, and then Eric Casebolt, the warrior, shows up. Absolutely. I, that's why I wrote the article, to, to compare and contrast those two officers using two very different policing styles. And to put those into a little bit of context, the warrior model of policing has been around now for about 30 years. Uh, and officers at, and many agencies take a great deal of professional pride in associating with the warrior. They go by the moniker of police warrior. There are books about police warriors, for example. Mm -hmm. Originally, it had a very limited meaning. Originally, the warrior mindset referred to the mental tenacity, the sheer determination that an officer had to have to survive a life-and-death struggle, a shootout, for example, or mm -hmm. a stabbing, really bad stuff. That shifted, and now what we see, the warrior mindset refers to a more hyper-vigilant, often aggressive approach to policing where everyone that the officer deals with is a potential threat, officers following the warrior mindset, are trained to establish an unquestioned command over the scene, to brook no opposition, to make sure that it is they and only they on scene who are calling the shots. And I think if you look at it in that light, that's what we see from Corporal Casebolt. The Guardian. Yeah. The, the Guardian, in contrast, takes a different approach to policing. It's not about controlling that one individual scene, or at least not just about that one individual scene. It's also about building good short and long-term relationships with the people that officers interact with. Mm -hmm. It's about protecting civilians, and that includes criminal suspects, from not just harm, but also from indignity when it's possible to do so. And I want to stress that possible point, because let's be honest, violence is an inherent part of policing. There will never, unfortunately, be, I think, a day when police officers aren't called upon to use violence legitimately. But a guardian officer isn't, certainly isn't looking for an excuse to use violence and uses force as a, as a matter of last resort. If you can talk to someone calmly and prevent them from getting upset, then that's the choice. That's the tact that you take. Isn't that Avoiding the... Yeah, go ahead, please. I, I, one, one last point yeah. is about avoiding, avoiding violence when it is possible to do so. And that includes the way that you talk to people. If you talk to people in a certain way, you are going to create resistance and resentment. And when you create resistance and resentment, now you have to overcome it, sometimes using force. Hey. If Officer Casebolt hadn't been yelling and cursing at the teenagers, maybe we would have seen a very different reaction. Maybe we would have seen much more compliance and much less resistance because nobody likes being disrespected in front of their peers. And as a law enforcement professional, while it may be their job to, to be able to uh, you know, be both the guardian in some situations and the warrior in other situations where it's merited, isn't, 
Isn't the first part of their training to know when to use which of those uh, uh, two different policing methods? Uh, uh, you know, I, so I can understand uh, Eric Casebolt's behavior in a in a case that merited that sort of thing, pulling out his gun, pointing it at people nearby so that he stays safe. But this clearly did not seem to be such a case that merited that. Isn't that sort of training? Uh, lesson number one, when to be the guardian and when to be the warrior for a professional law enforcement officer? Well, it, it certainly should be. Unfortunately, I think that all often gets lost in the emphasis that modern police training puts on warrior mindset and officer safety. But you're absolutely right, it should be. Good police trainers make a point of telling their officers, you need to have a, like a light switch inside of you that when the point of no return is passed, when violence becomes necessary, you are able to do what needs to be done without hesitating. But until then, you can't let your anger or your ego control your reactions. Until then, you are the guardian right up until the point where you need to switch gears, where you need to flip that switch and become the warrior. And you also need to be able to flip that switch the other way. After you've used violence, after it's no longer appropriate, you need to be able to take it back off. That's a difficult thing to do. Officers are human, as the former officer said in that clip you played earlier. Mm -hmm. They do have emotions, but they need to be trained to control them, particularly in things like this. Yeah, because this is their job. And I understand uh, that emotions can run high, but it seems like their training should run much higher and be able to keep them calm in situations like this. I mean, if a cop like this gets this excited in a situation like this where there doesn't seem to be any clear and present danger, and again, we can't know what was going on off camera, what was going on in the moments before the camera ran, rolled, but it does uh, raise question about this guy's training and the fact that he's training others. You write, uh, Seth Stoughton, at your, in your article at Talking Points Memo, the kids interacting with the first officer were excited but not upset. They remained cooperative. Had they gone home at that moment, they'd have a story for their friends and family, but it would be a story that happened to have the police in it rather than being a story about the police. Uh, you raise some interesting points in this article in that these sort of interactions, these things that happen... Uh, are important above and beyond the moment that they happen, that these are the stories that kids take home, that kids share with their friends, that sort of forms the picture of how they see uh, see the police. So in one sense, we see something like this, and we say, well, okay, this happened, it was bad, this guy needs to be uh, uh, disciplined, but it's no big deal, nobody got killed or, or hurt. But incidents like this have a much larger effect in the community, do they not? They absolutely do. They absolutely do, particularly in communities that have a long history. Look, a, a community's perception of its police department is not based on one incident. Mm -hmm. It's not based on the mayor getting pulled over for a traffic stop. It's not based on the town drunk getting arrested. It's based on a history of incidents that have built up in the public consciousness. One bad incident is entirely excusable in a community that has a good relationship with its police department. And by excusable, what I mean there is the public is willing to understand and forgive if they trust their police department to deal with it appropriately. On the other hand, what we see in many communities now that have long-term broken relationships with their police departments is 
a lot of skepticism when officers are involved in positive interactions, because one positive interaction is not enough to make up for many, 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 in some cases, negative interactions. So, yes, it's not just about this one incident. It's also about what impression are officers leaving these kids with. If one of those kids has an interaction with a police officer the next day or this weekend, what are they going to have in the backs of their minds as they're interacting with that officer? That's really important because that can create resistance. It can increase the risk to officers and to civilians. In communities where people, the, the civilians trust the police, they are more cooperative with the police, not just in, the, in, the, in terms of reporting crimes and being witnesses, but also in terms of complying with arrests. They don't resist as much, and that means that officers use less force, and that's good for everyone. It keeps officers safe. It also keeps communities safe. You don't get that if this is your default policing, the, the policing, the, the aggressive uh, policing that we see in this video. You don't build a good relationship by screaming at somebody. I'm speaking with former police officer uh, Seth Stoughton, now an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, where he uh, focuses on criminal law, criminal procedure, and the regulation of police. Uh, Seth, after the, um, uh, the, the, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson and Tamir Rice up in Cleveland and other similar incidents, uh, some of which were caught on video, uh, the, the feds went in there, the Department of Justice went in there to Ferguson, found all kinds of problems. They went into Cleveland, found all kinds of problems. It seems like uh, when the Department of Justice goes into almost any of these areas, almost any of these communities, we find some pretty outrageous uh, behavior and some pretty outrageous uh, racism, I hate to say it, going on in almost anywhere that they seem to look, or at least that's how it comes across. So what we see in this video, and it does seem like it was the kids who were African-American who were being focused on uh, more than the white kids there, uh, this, this clearly is not a problem that is unique to McKinney, Texas, or to Ferguson, Missouri, or to Cleveland, Ohio. Um, are we just finally now beginning to see these things due to the ubiquity of, of uh, cell phone video, or what is going on here? Why is this suddenly becoming an issue uh, that all of America is, is looking at? Is, is it simply about the cell phone video? And is that ultimately a good thing as you see it, Professor? I think it heavily, heavily relies on cell phone video and social media, the combination of those two things. Take a step back in history and think about the aftermath of the Rodney King beating. There was one video, a uh, home video shot on what used to be a state-of-the-art recording uh, recorder, mm -hmm. and it was played on the news. It was discussed by pundits, by experts, uh, by news anchors, but that's and around the water cooler. But that's really it. Today we see a totally different picture. We see videos from all over the country shot by a whole range of people because everyone has a video recorder with them. They can share it very easily on social media, and it's not just pundits and experts and news anchors talking about it. It's everyone on Facebook and Twitter. That, I think, promotes a level of not just dialogue. It promotes a level of transparency that we have not seen before. A lot of the, the public, 
was shocked by the Rodney King video. A lot of African-American communities were not. They said, look, this stuff happens every day. Why are you not aware of this? Mm -hmm. I think we're starting to see the same thing with the uh, more recent videos, Tamir Rice, for example, Mm -hmm. or Walter Scott here in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. We're seeing things on a broad public stage that make people who've only had positive interactions with the police, if they've had any interactions with the police, who make those people say, whoa, I had no idea this was going on. In a way, these videos vindicate many of the complaints that we've heard from minority communities for years now. I think that's a great thing because we cannot improve policing as an institution, and I highly value policing. I think it's an incredibly important institution, but we cannot improve it until we know what's going on, until we have public and political will to look into it and say, you know, these practices are not what we want to see. They need to be better, and we demand that they are better. That's the way America works. And and I tend to agree with you. I think as horrible as some of these incidents are that we're seeing on video, I think that ultimately the bigger picture is that this will prove to be a net positive because a lot of things are changing uh, because of it. And you're right. A a, a lot of the uh, uh, complaints that we've heard for years a lot of those folks are being vindicated when we can see this with our own eyes, even those of us who may not be in those communities where uh, uh, so many folks have been complaining for years. Um, do you, uh, in the minute or two we have left here, uh, Seth, do you uh, do you think body cams for all policemen, which I think uh, President Obama has called for, do, do you think that that will make uh, a real difference in this sort of thing and in the police community uh, who you deal with, who you talk to, uh, what is what is their thoughts about that? Are they eager to have body cams, or is there resistance to that idea? Well, like everything in policing, it's tough to paint with a broad brush. Many officers are in favor of body cams, not just because they'll promote good policing, but also because they will protect officers from frivolous complaints. Many officers are very skeptical about body cams because not just do they promise accountability, but they um, promise outsiders who don't know about policing reviewing what police do on a day-to-day basis and, as many police officers, although not all, see it meddling in something that a lot of people don't have experience with. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am a fan of body cams. I am pro-body cams as long as we keep in mind a couple of things. One, they are not going to be a perfect solution to every or even most incidents. Things will happen off camera. People will continue to debate exactly what body camera displays. There are going to be many reasons that body cams are uh, uh, could be inconclusive in many Mm -hmm. incidents. Mm -hmm. That said, there's still going to be better evidence than we have, broadly speaking, now. We don't have a lot of that video that we could have now with body cams. They add a voice, they add facts, and I think that's all to the better. Does the policing community seem to be in favor of it, those those folks that you speak with? Many of them are, yes. I think we are seeing a growing trend toward body cams. There's a little bit of skepticism among the police executives that I've spoken to who are afraid that body cams are going to turn out to be a, a fad, a trend. And that's worrisome in policing because they're expensive. Fads can be pretty pricey, particularly when you think about all of the data storage and Mm -hmm. uh, recovery costs actually looking up videos over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Mm. But with that skepticism aside, what I'm seeing from many police leaders, police executives, is uh, a, a desire to increase their 
community relations, their presence, their relationship with the community, and body cams are one way, although not the only way that's needed. They're one way that can help with that. And uh, I think, uh, Seth, you offer in your article at Talking Points Memo uh, this advice. What should officers do in similar situations? For starters, they must realize that the public, even a group of noncompliant teenagers, are not an enemy to be vanquished but civilians to be protected to the extent possible from indignity and harm. Uh, the saying out here in Los Angeles uh, for the LAPD, to protect and serve, it, it, it's disturbing how often uh, uh, that idea that they are here to protect and serve us uh, seems to be disappearing, at least when we see these uh, one video after another showing cops not protecting but actually aggressing against the folks they're, they're supposed to be protecting. Uh, Seth Stoughton, Ab yeah. Absolutely. Disagreeing with you, absolutely. Seth Stoughton, assistant professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law. You should read his article at Talking Points Memo. Uh, it's right at the top, right? I think right now, uh, headlined, A Former Cop on What Went Wrong in McKinney. And you can and should follow him on the Twitters at Police Law Prof. Seth, great to have you here today, and uh, I suspect we'll be calling you again in the future when uh, another unfortunate video like this comes out. Uh, my, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and uh, I, I hope I'm not back again, but I'm, I'm happy <laughs> to be when called for. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with much more broadcast, including some breaking news out of Arkansas. Some breaking good news out of Arkansas for a change. And, of course, why all of this, uh, why all of this matters above and beyond McKinney, Texas? Well, we'll get, all, uh, we'll get to all of that and much more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com here with you. So uh, things are turning in Arkansas, as they are across the rest of the country. Uh, but uh, it's taking a little bit longer in Arkansas for some reason, where the dead-enders are putting up a fight against equality for all of their citizens, specifically marriage equality. Uh, this is uh, some good news out of Arkansas today. A judge has ordered Arkansas officials to recognize more than 500 same-sex marriages performed in the state last year, a move that will let couples enjoy a host of benefits, such as filing taxes jointly and enrolling together in state health insurance plans. Pulaski County Circuit Judge Wendell Griffin validated marriage licenses that were that were issued to same-sex couples after another judge struck down the state's gay marriage ban last year. The state Supreme Court halted the distribution of marriage licenses to gay couples after a week in May 2014 and is still considering the appeal over a voter-approved same-sex marriage ban. So basically... 
what happened was the uh, the courts there found that it was uh, that banning marriage equality was a violation of the state constitution, and then the state's conservatives, and I put quotes around those that you cannot see because this is the radio, but quotes around con- uh, conservative. Uh, those conservatives said, no, 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 we don't believe in equal justice under the law. We believe in uh, justice to whoever we damn well feel like giving justice to. And they shut down marriage equality after a week. But then you had some 500 uh, couples who had been married in the state of Arkansas on a question about whether they would be recognized as legally married or not. Well, now Pulaski County uh, Circuit Court says, yes, they will be recognized as married and they'll be able to uh, uh, file their taxes together, enroll in state health insurance plans together and so forth. Some of the same-sex couples who married in Arkansas last year filed a lawsuit in February alleging that the state was violating their rights by not recognizing their union. So you see, the first they had to file a lawsuit to be allowed to be married at all. Then they have to file a lawsuit to, uh, once they have gotten married to have those marriages uh, uh, legally recognized in Arkansas. So embarrassing. Uh, yeah. It wasn't yeah. Arkansas the place, the last state in the union to finally repeal interracial laws that are against were interracial they? marriage? I believe they were. Or so, was it Alabama? No, I think it was Arkansas, was it Arkansas, but I will check. I will check on that. Now that you've sullied the good name of Arkansas, now <laughs> you're going to go check on it. Okay, you'll check on that. Uh, uh, of course, judges across the country have ruled against bans similar to Arkansas's uh, since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down part of a federal anti-gay marriage law in June 2013. Gay marriage is now uh, legal in more than half of U.S. states, says AP. The Arkansas Supreme Court has not indicated when it will rule on gay marriage. Of course it won't. They will take as long as they possibly can. In the meantime, we'll be getting a decision from the uh, from the Supreme Court of the United States, probably allowing marriage equality in all 50 states. Once again, I feel uh, it's important for me to mention here that it will not be mandatory you will not have to get gay married just because it's just because it's made legal in your state and found to be constitutional by the Supreme Court. We'll see if that's what the Supreme Court ends up doing. I suspect that will be the case, and then we'll have to uh, find out if Judge Roy Moore, the Chief Justice of the Arkansas Supreme Court, if he will decide to recognize the federal authority of the United States Supreme Court or whether we will uh, have another shooting war starting down in in Arkansas. Uh, speaking of shooting wars, <laughs> and uh, and my thanks again to uh, Seth Stoughton uh, to talking about that uh, McKinney, Texas videotape and helping us understand what we're looking at when we're seeing cops doing the right thing versus cops doing the wrong thing. And boy, if that cop can't do the right thing in that situation, in a very uh, seemingly, uh, you know, calm area, suburban area of, of Texas. If he can't do the right thing in that case, uh, should we be entrusting him with, uh, you know, assault uh, weapons and militarized gear that the federal government has get, been giving to local cops? Uh, local cops like that guy, Eric, what is his name? Case Bolt. Well, we've talked about on this show. 
the effort by some in Congress to try to roll back this uh, this program where the federal government gives all of this uh, militarized uh, gear to these local cops, to local cops like Eric Casebolt. Uh, we've had Congressman Hank Johnson on this show to talk about it, uh, his... Um, his measure to roll back the, the that law. There's uh, an executive order by Barack Obama. We'll do some of that, uh, but uh, but it won't take back the gear. It won't claw back the gear that is given to to some of these cops. Um, the version in the Senate now that uh, has been sponsored by Senator Rand Paul. Got to give him credit here. Uh, he is now rolling out legislation on this um, on the in the U.S. Senate to require local law enforcement agencies to return some of that military-grade equipment that was transferred to them by the federal government. The Kentucky Republican and Republican presidential uh, candidate, along with Senator Brian Schatz, Democrat from Hawaii, has introduced the Stop Militarizing Our Law Enforcement Act in the Senate. That's the uh, Senate version of the same bill that uh, Senator Hank Johnson from Georgia, the Democrat there, had introduced months ago. Um, it would also block the transfer of, quote, offensive military equipment to state and local police agencies in the future. And the legislation would still allow for law enforcement to get body armor and other defensive equipment. Sounds like a wise idea. If you look at that uh, at that cop in uh, in Texas and so many of these other videotapes we've seen and now. If you look at some of these numbers coming in from The Guardian today, which is uh, trying uh, valiantly, has been trying valiantly to put together a database, what they describe as the most comprehensive database of U.S. police killing ever published. Because this data is not easy to come across, uh, actually. Uh, police don't have to turn over uh, information uh, like this in the U.S. And so The Guardian has been trying to gather it, trying to pull together some of the numbers. And the numbers, frankly, are startling as compared to uh, numbers in other countries. For example, and Des, I don't know if you've seen these, but uh, I'd love your thoughts on this because it's kind of amazing. Uh, okay, so England and Wales... They've only got a population of about 57 million uh, uh, total there. They've had 55 police shootings in the last 24 years. Here in the U.S., with a much bigger population, 316 million, we've had 59 fatal police shootings in the first 24 days of 2015. Wow. So if you... Uh, yes, uh, obviously, the U.S. population is roughly six times that of England and Wales, but the math still don't work. Uh, 55 fatal police shootings in 24 years in England and Wales versus 59 in the U.S. in just the first 24 days of 2014, uh, 2015. In Iceland, uh, let's see, the number of fatal police shooting in the nation's 71 years of existence. Any idea, Desi Doyen, how many uh, police shootings? Uh, 11 billion. No, there has been one. Wow. One police shooting in all of Iceland in uh, 71 years of existence of that country. Now they only have 323,000 uh, uh, people in, in their population. So let's compare that to Stockton, California, where there's uh, about 300, just under 300,000 uh, uh, people. 
They've had three fatal police shootings in just the first five months of 2015. So there has been one fatal shooting by Icelandic police in the country's 71-year history. The city of Stockton, with 25,000 fewer residents than all of Iceland combined, had three fatal encounters in just the first five months of 2015. Germany. Fifteen citizens of any race, armed or unarmed, fatally shot in the two years from 2010 to uh, 2011. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., 19 unarmed black men fatally shot by police in the first five months of 2015. Police, uh, the Guardian goes on to say that police in the U.S. have shot and killed more people in every week this year than are reportedly shot and killed by German police in an entire year. You know, it's funny, because who, who was it that was taught? Was it Rick Santorum, who we were recently uh, talking about on, the I think, the Green News Report, when he was saying that the Pope, the Pope shouldn't be talking about uh, climate change because there are so many other more important things. Yes, that's and of what course, we, and we made fun of Rick Santorum because, uh, well, what's more important than the survival of humanity? But okay, even if you say, well, yeah, survival of humanity—that's important—but we don't have to worry about the survival of the humanity for what, ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred years uh, when it comes to global warming. So, what other issues are you interested in, Mr. Santorum? Well, he's certainly not talking about the number of fatal police shootings in this country. He's not talking and nobody is nobody on the Republican side. And we've got and w- w- so many people running for president on the Republican side. None of them talking about police violence. None of them talking about violence, frankly, at all gun violence at all. They don't talk about it. They won't talk about it. They won't get their big money if they do talk about it. Despite the fact that some uh, what 32,000 Americans are killed every year in gun violence. As far as we know. As far as we know, meaning because we don't have good statistics on, right. on homicide. Yeah, exactly. It's up to The Guardian in Britain yeah. to actually uh, th- compile these statistics for us. Apparently so. Uh, let's see. Uh, in Australia, 94 fatal police shootings between 1992 and 2011. 94 total between 19, between 19, 94 total between 1992 and 2011. Whereas here in the U.S., we've had 97 fatal police shootings in March 2015 alone. It's just remarkable numbers. I mean, it's a crisis. It's, it's a crisis when it comes to gun violence. It's a crisis when it comes to gun violence by cop. And it seems so little is being done. And I can only hope, you know... I. I I can only hope that uh, through these videos now that we're beginning to see more of, and I I agree very much with Seth Stoughton here, that this is actually good news. It seems despairing. It seems despairing that each and every week it seems like there's a, you know, a new horrible uh, videotape coming out of uh, somebody getting shot by police. Usually someone who happens to be African-American being shot by police, I know that seem and, and you know and the, and the protests that ensue thereafter. It seems, at first blush, to be horrible and horrible news, and it certainly is in the in the case of these people getting killed. Um, but I think the bigger picture is this is coming to light. This is coming to light. People are finally beginning to understand. 
that the complaints that we've heard for so many years from the African-American communities are not just people complaining and, oh, they're, you know, you know, oh, they just hate the police. They hate white. These are real things. These are real things that are going on. And they're not just going on in the city of Detroit, in the city of Chicago, uh, you know, New York City. These are going on everywhere in every small community, every town, every hamlet. Uh, Ferguson, Missouri, near where I grew up. McKinney, Texas, near where you grew up, Desi Doyen. Uh, this is happening everywhere, and I believe that America is finally beginning to notice it. At least I hope that is the case, and I hope they notice it more and more as every damn cop in America, uh, you know, eventually gets a, a camera, a video camera on them so we can see what's going on so we don't have to rely on... Uh, Oh, the white kid who's not being arrested at the pool party to videotape, to report what's going on uh, in this country. So these numbers go on and on. You can look over at, uh, at, the, at the Guardian. Uh, oh, look, Finland. Six bullets fired total by police in 2013. Bullets? Six bullets total. Meanwhile, in Pasco, Washington... 17 bullets fired in the fatal shooting of Antonio Zambrano Montes. So six bullets in all of Finland with a population of five and a half million. 17 bullets in Pas Pasco, Washington with a population of 67,000. That's nearly three times what police in Finland are reported to have fired during all of 2013. Amazing uh, database. Over at theguardian.com. All right, a quick break here, and we're going to come back with, uh, oh, the big uh, conference, Desi Doyen. I don't even know if you, uh, well, we'll find out if you're going. There's a big uh, international conference on climate change. I know this is a big thing <laughs> to you because you're one of those believers in science. So I'm looking forward to uh, hearing about this. I'm sure you're packing your bags and getting ready to go. We will talk about that and more after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Desi Doyen. Uh, this is Brad Friedman of the uh, of the Brad Blog, back with your Bradcast. That someone I think has an apology to make. I do. I have to apologize to, to, to the entire Arkansas. state of Arkansas. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because earlier I had thought that they were the ones uh -huh. that were the last in the United States to repeal their interracial marriage laws, banning interracial marriage, and I was wrong. Turns out you were correct. What? Let's note that for the record. Yes. Brad was right about Please something. Please do. Thank you. <laughs> that it was actually Alabama that was the last one. Right. They waited until the year 2000 to officially amend their state constitution to remove language prohibiting miscegenation, which is the word oh, for it. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's South Carolina took until 1998. But no, Alabama wins. Alabama wins. 2000. And, and, and we are officially sorry to those people in Arkansas who you have insulted by calling them backwater hillbillies. Well, no, you called did, them that. But oh, I, did? I didn't call them that. Oh, I yes, didn't, did. I didn't right. call them that. <laughs> you just did. I, I might call them that in the future, but 
Now I should. I'm from Missouri, so you know if anybody's backwater hillbilly, they, Arkansas, they're my neighbors. So I'm I'm uh, right there hillbillying with them. Uh, Desi Doyen, uh, you I'm sure are are prepared, ready to go to Washington D.C. because the uh, 10th International Conference on Climate Change is happening a little bit later this week. Uh, are oh you, are you going to be there? I'm sure you're going to be you're excited about this. Gosh, no. I can't Why? wait to not attend that. Why would you not attend this be- International Conference on Climate Change? Because this is not really an international conference on climate change. It's really an international conference on climate change denial hosted by the Heartland Institute. They do it every single year, sometimes twice a year if they can get away with it. And it's a great fundraising opportunity. And, of course, I'm sure they have lots of goodies prepared for all of their lovely deniers that are going to come. So you knew about this. I didn't even tell you that I was going to talk about it, but you already knew about this. It it wasn't hard. Uh, This is what uh, the keynote speaker is a noted climate change denier, uh, really uh, impressive climate change denier, uh, Senator James Inhofe from Oklahoma, king of the climate change deniers in the U.S. Congress. This conference by the Heartland Institute, which has compared environmentalists to... um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Yes. Charles Manson, yeah, the was a, serial their, killer. Their ad campaign of putting up billboards yeah. around the country saying, uh, comparing people who actually accept the science of climate change, like most scientists, and then compared them to serial killers like Ted Kaczynski. Some of the questions that, uh, the important questions they uh, say, according to their press release, they will be discussing at this uh, conference. Very important. Is climate science sufficiently advanced to allow accurate forecasts of future temperatures and weather? Yes. Okay. Are temperatures more likely to cool than warm in the next century? No, but God, I wish they were right about that. Well, that's what they say. They think it might. It's going it, to. We're heading. They're into just asking cooling. the question. They're just asking. Should policies adopted at the height of the global warming scare be repealed and replaced with pro-environment, pro-energy, and pro-jobs policies? Some of the questions are asking at the conference. Given the new, given the new science and economics of climate change, isn't it time for a fresh start to the debate over what, if anything, to do about global warming? So they finally decided they're going to talk about what, if anything, to actually do rather than just outright denial, which all of the rest of their conferences have been about. How to deny and how to deny better. So the crazy people are meeting in Washington, D.C., where uh, Senator James Inhofe of uh, Oklahoma will be uh, keynoting the climate change conference by the Heartland Institute, which it should be noted while we make fun of them as they deserve uh, they are actually quoted quite often in uh, mainstream corporate media yeah. as as the other side of the climate change question. I know it's pretty sad. That's the uh, that's the opposition that the broadcast media tends to feel is important to include in the false balance that they seem compelled to fulfill. And they do. And the reason one of the reasons we call them deniers is because, A, they deny science, but B, it also hurts their feelings because it tends to compare them to Holocaust deniers, which, as you recall, some years ago on C-SPAN, back in the heyday of Fox News, when they tricked the rest of the media into believing that balance was something that was important. Never mind truth. Balance. Uh, C-SPAN actually had a had a, a thing with Eli uh, Wiesel, the uh, noted uh, uh, Nazi hunter. I don't know how to describe. 
after that, they had a, uh, a Holocaust denier on for 15 minutes as balance. Yes. To Elie Wiesel. Ah, okay. And the media still does that. Anyway, all right. Desi Doyen, my thanks to you, even though you were unbelievably wrong and insulting to the state of Arkansas. For which I have apologized, and I'm sure Arkansas accepts. We'll see. My thanks also to booking goddess Cynthia Cohn and to my guest today, Seth Stoughton of South Carolina School of Law. We will be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. And if you're listening live, uh, we'll be on KPFK taking calls, taking your calls at 818-985-5735. Between the hours, what are the hours? Uh, 3 p.m. and 4 p.m. Pacific time on Wednesday. We'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, you can email me, bradcast at bradblog.com, or you can find me on the Twitters at, at the bradblog. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We'll see you soon. Good luck, world. <laughs>